today I begin a three-part series on the minor prophet Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk lived around 600 BC, that's 600 years before Christ, and he was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been ultimately wiped out and they, when they had been conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And this book is set in the twilight of the Assyrian Empire and the dawn of the Babylonian Empire. And just to be clear, uh, minor prophets are not called minor because they are unimportant, but because they are brief. Indeed, the message of Habakkuk is extremely compelling because we can all resonate with his fear that in the midst of gross evils and injustices, where is God? What is he doing? Does he not care? You don't have to pause for very long to bring to mind past or present injustices, whether they be personal or more general, and we are both troubled by them and at the same time captivated by them. Uh, Think of all the news and interest stories and documentaries that expose and explore this theme. More recently, we've been confronted by the stories of Jeffrey Epstein, the billionaire sex offender, who in the end wasn't really brought to justice. Or what about George Floyd, who experienced terrible injustice and has which has uh, subsequently sparked these violent protests all over America. Or what about closer to home? What about Australians, uh, Australia's uh, treatment of Indigenous Australians or asylum seekers? We know more than we once did about how bad the world is. And it is exasperating. We're trapped between our conviction that things should be different and our despair that we cannot necessarily change them. And these injustices, they, they feed our fears. I mean, what sort of world do we believe in? What sort, of, what sort of God do we believe in? Where is he? What is he doing? Does he not care? But in our questioning, we are so often met with silence. And it's maddening. But but Habakkuk has been preserved for us precisely because he asks and has answered these very questions. And so God has, has answered us. He's answered us in this honest, heartfelt dialogue that he has with this little-known prophet Habakkuk who, who paints for us a portrait of the life of faith. Uh, I've entitled this series Fear and Faith. And this particular sermon, Protest, because that is basically what it is. It's Habakkuk's protest against God for for tolerating these gross evils and injustices. Uh, Let's read uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 again, just to set the scene. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. The the wicked hem in the righteous so that 
justice is perverted. Habakkuk's initial protest has to do with the evil and injustices within God's people. Judah itself, not, not the world out there, but Judah itself had embraced foreign idols and were descending into moral anarchy. The law was being mocked and therefore so was, so was God. Habakkuk would open the Jerusalem Morning Herald and it was filled with violence and injustice and wrongdoing and destruction and corruption and, and conflict. People were facing injustices and other people weren't facing justice. Does it sound like he lived in the same world that we do? People look the other way, but not Habakkuk. And so his message was more of a burden. He's trying to reconcile things that he knows to be true. He knows that God is good and powerful and holy, and yet Habakkuk sees evil and perceives God to be doing absolutely nothing about it. God has every right to judge the nation. And so Habakkuk asks, why don't you do something about the wickedness of your people? And the Lord answers. He says, I will. I will punish sin. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told, I am raising up the Babylonians. Unbelievable, right? The Lord was going to use Babylon like, like a pawn to deliver his justice upon his people. And if you read on, the implication is that, that Judah would suffer the same fate as the northern kingdom of Israel had. Exile. Babylon would, in verse 6, seize dwellings not their own. And then verse 9, gather prisoners like sand. God describes them as ruthless, impetuous, feared, dreaded, lawless, fierce, intent on violence. Verse 11, guilty people whose own strength is their God. Suffice to say, this is not the answer that Habakkuk expected. It makes no sense whatsoever for Habakkuk. He didn't like it when, when God was doing nothing or rather he couldn't see what it was that God was doing. But now that he can see, now that God's ways have been made known, he doesn't like what he sees. The Babylonians, I mean, they were more wicked than those whom Habakkuk had prayed that God would judge in the first place. Anything but that and anyone but they. It was an unexpected answer to prayer and it was an unwelcome answer to prayer. And God gives no explanation. It's almost as if he's prodding Habakkuk to ask this next question in verses 12 and 13. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Habakkuk is perplexed and he goes on to, to ask the question, why is it that the even more wicked will prosper? How can God use evil to judge righteous? And he likens the Babylonians as fishermen 
They will cast their nets out wide and destroying nations without mercy and, and living in luxury. Habakkuk was being confronted by the truth spelled out to us in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 to 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We are constantly confronted by this truth, aren't we? I mean, God is notoriously uncooperative at our attempts at controlling him. We can't box God in. Yes, he will stay true to his character. Yes, he will stay true to his word. But God is not what we make of him. Those things are called idols. God will constantly confound our expectations so long as our expectations are our expectations. He isn't tame. We can't contain him. We can't control him. We can't manipulate him. His paths are often beyond tracing out. So deep is his wisdom and knowledge. We want justice. And when do we want it? We want it now. We love justice, don't we? It's one of the reasons why we love uh, superheroes. Like Superman, who not only stands for justice, but who can seemingly deliver it instantaneously. But as Habakkuk learned, we have to be careful for what we pray for. Because in all this, Habakkuk and we must learn two things. First, no one is righteous, not even one. Even the righteous are unrighteous. You notice what Habakkuk does here? He relativizes sin. Upon hearing and seeing that God would use the Babylonians to judge the sin among his own people, he protests, we're not as bad as they. And that sentiment is planted deep within the human heart. Goes back to the very beginning when, when Adam compared himself to Eve and, and Eve blamed the serpent. I can see it in my kids, in the way that they try to, to wriggle out of trouble. I can see it in my heart, in the way that I treat my own sin as relative to someone else's or something else, or in the way that I try to excuse my sin or justify my sinning. We compare, we compare, and then we contrast. We place ourselves in a spectrum and we say, to, we say to ourselves, we're not as bad as they are. And yet Jesus says in, in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 3, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. No one is righteous, not even one. Israelite sin was just as deserving of punishment as Babylonian sin. Your sin is just as deserving of punishment as fill in the blank. The Israelites were in just as dire a need of forgiveness and rescue than the Babylonians were. You're, you are in just as dire a need for rescue and forgiveness as 
fill in the blank. There are no good people. There are no better people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so William Lane Craig, a Christian apologist, writes this. For now we see clearly that the true problem of evil is the problem of our evil. Filled with sin and morally guilty before God, the question we face is not how God can justify himself to us, but how we can be justified before him. That is the first thing that that we in Habakkuk must learn, that no one is righteous, not even one. And the second is this. God can and does use evil for good. We see it again and again throughout the Bible. In the providence of God, evil serves an instrumental good purpose. God never does evil. And next time in Habakkuk 2, we will learn that even though God allows evil, he will always punish evil. But here we are learning the Romans 8.28 principle that all things work for the good of those who love him. You see, in all this, God's concern was to to rescue his people, that they may live faithfully by faith, that ultimately they may be spared his final judgment, that there may well be a faithful remnant. After the initial shock, uh, the, the lesson is obvious, isn't it? God urges Habakkuk and us to to broaden our horizons, to see the bigger picture. God not only determines outcomes, but he rules over the means by which these outcomes are realised. God controls the nations. They are his agents. The Babylonians had no knowledge of his will. They mobilised their troops. They, they planned their conquests. They, they ravaged their victims to satisfy their own lust for wealth and power. But God used their plans to carry out his plans. And surely, surely, in the cross, we have the greatest example of how God can and does use evil for good. When Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5 is quoted in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 13 verse 41, For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. Paul uses it to explain how God worked to offer forgiveness of sins in Jesus. We can't always see or understand God's ways. But God can and does use evil for good. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't advocate for the oppressed, that we shouldn't We shouldn't pursue justice. But it does mean that we live with that tension or rather that that harmony. Even when Habakkuk's plea becomes ours. As we see and feel the gross evils and injustices that are both in us and surround us, we trust that God still has his hands in world affairs today, directing the rise and the fall of nations. A friend once posted this on Facebook. He writes, It would be much more comforting to simply believe that God didn't exist at all 
than to believe and yet see plainly that he is out of his depth when it comes to suffering and injustices endured throughout the world. And Tim Keller would rightly point out, though, that if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have, at the same moment, a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. But we know that ultimately evil and injustice have been defeated, right? God is not out of his depth. He descended to the very depths, conquered sin and death and rose again, victorious. And even though it was promised and prophesied in the Old Testament, it came as somewhat of a surprise to almost everyone then, as it does today, that the ultimate defeat of injustice occurred when Jesus endured the greatest injustice the world has ever or will ever see. But more on that next time. For now, uh, Habakkuk still has unanswered questions. Our reading ends in chapter 2, verse 1, with Habakkuk stationing himself up on the city wall, standing by, awaiting God's answer. You know what, it strikes me that times of pain or suffering or confusion or loss are extremely formative. And yet we tend not to seriously consider the seeds of doubt that we plant within our hearts in these moments. And instead we allow them to fester and to grow and to distort our view of God until the God of the Bible is diluted and powerless. Yes, we live with, with fear and doubt. We need to, like Habakkuk, address them and address them open and honestly. Express your thoughts about God to God. Submit them to Scripture. And seek counsel from, from Christians that you trust. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the way that it addresses our lives and our hearts in this day and in this age. And I pray that we might well be con concerned for those whom are experiencing injustice and we might well pursue justice, but we might also look to you and have our horizons broadened to see that you are in control, that you have your hands in world affairs, directing the rise and fall of nations, that you are bringing this world through pain and suffering even sometimes 
that they may see the Lord Jesus and respond in repentance and faith. Amen. Uh, Welcome again. At this time in the service, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper, and I'd like to encourage you to um, get your uh, bread and juice together if you haven't done that yet. And um, I'm going to begin by um, just opening us in prayer and then reading uh, that passage that I've read many times before out of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the way that you have given us this sacrament, a way to remember and see uh, in a a physical way uh, this symbol of Jesus' death on the cross for us. We thank you and praise you that he has given himself once for all, never to be done again, He has sacrificed himself and made atonement for our sins. We thank you and praise you that you've demonstrated the validity and the the full power of that sacrifice by raising him from the dead. And we thank you and praise you that we serve a God who is alive. And even as we come to the Lord's Supper, we are reminded uh, that we are dependent on his death for us, even as we look forward to his return. And we ask that you will be with us as we... Uh, participate this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and again, this is a place in the Bible that kind of condenses the Lord's Supper, uh, and it does so in a context where that's what the people needed. The people needed some really clear uh, instruction because they were getting so far afield. Paul says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, For your meetings do no more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each one of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or Or do you despise the church of God, and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread and eat it.
After supper, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Take this wine and drink it. Father God, we thank you that even though we are apart, we are united in your Son. We thank you for these reminders, very real reminders, of all that your Son has achieved for us. We thank you for his death and his resurrection and for life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Let's now receive the Lord's benediction. Now may the love of God the Father, the fellowship of his Son, and the presence and peace of his Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen. Amen.